Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The top political story of the week continues to be this saga over the Trump-Ukraine call and the whistleblower complaint. Uh, It's hard to keep track of all the developments as they keep moving so fast. Some of the latest has been that Trump now openly asked China to investigate the Bidens, all the involvement of Vice President Mike Pence, and the former special envoy to Ukraine is testifying about what he knows. For more on all of this, we spoke to Brett Samuels. He's a White House reporter at The Hill. The president sort of added a lot more fuel to the fire. Basically, he was asked specifically what it is that he hoped the Ukrainian president would do about the Bidens when he raised them in a phone call in July. And the president responded by saying not only does he think Ukraine should be investigating the Bidens, but that China should also be looking into the Bidens. So he publicly urged two foreign governments to investigate a domestic political rival. So that's really just kind of heap additional kindling onto this fire. I know the president feels like he did nothing wrong, but now putting it out there in the open, I'm sure people in the White House and even Republicans in the House and Senate are probably shaking their heads a little bit. It's like, you know, now you're just publicly out there saying it. And that's the center of the problem. I, I don't know if the president doesn't necessarily understand what the actual criticism is, but he's going full force now and putting it out there in the public. He's been very adamant that there was nothing wrong with his phone call with the Ukrainian president in July when he first raised this. He's called the call perfect. He said there was no quid pro quo that he talked about. And Republicans have been happy to defend that and say there was no explicit demands made in the call and the call was not an issue. But the president kind of makes it difficult for his allies when he openly and publicly says what Democrats are accusing him of doing, which is requesting that a foreign government aid him in the 2020 election by looking into one of his opponents. So it's going to be a little more difficult for Republicans to defend that unless, as we saw with Vice President Pence today, they just go ahead and back him up on that. And Vice President Pence told reporters that he agrees that it's worth looking into the Bidens. Vice President Mike Pence is another wrinkle in this whole story. The Washington Post had a report that basically said that President Trump repeatedly involved the vice president in in his efforts to put pressure on the leader of Ukraine, including after the July 25th call that's at the center of this, where Mike Pence went to the Ukrainian president and told him, hey, we're going to withhold aid until you do more to fight corruption. So the vice president has been... He's, he's made a concerted effort to kind of stay away from a lot of these controversies that have engulfed the Trump administration. But on this one, President Trump seems to kind of be dragging him in. So you mentioned the Washington Post report, and that was one aspect of him getting dragged in. Last week at the United Nations, we saw President Trump essentially encourage reporters to try and get the transcripts of Vice President Pence's calls with the Ukrainian president because he asserted that they would show that there was no wrongdoing. So, you know, willingly or not, Vice President Pence is kind of being tied into this scandal in a much more direct way than I'm sure he anticipated. Mike Pence was not on that phone call on July 25th, but reports say that Pence's top advisor was on that call. And if he was taking notes, then that would have been put in a memo to the vice president. One of the other things that we learned was that the whistleblower went to one of the aides of Representative Adam Schiff before everybody else kind of found out about the complaint. 
So on that front, Adam Schiff kind of had a vague knowledge of what was going to be in that whistleblower complaint before it came out. And this is something that the president and his Republican backers are really trying to hammer home, is the idea that Adam Schiff knew about this whistleblower complaint before the rest of the public did. And they're sort of portraying it in a bit of a misleading way, suggesting that Adam Schiff knew the whistleblower or knew their complaint and chose not to share it. In reality, you know, his office was informed that this whistleblower had concerns that their complaint was not being taken seriously. And so his office directed the whistleblower to go through the formal process of filing a complaint with the inspector general. So, you know, it's certainly it can present a bit of an optics problem, I think, for Adam Schiff. But so it'll be a messaging battle over the significance of that New York Times report. The former U.S. special envoy for Ukraine, Kurt Volker, went to Capitol Hill to testify The reports so far are that he was telling Rudy Giuliani, who's another key piece in all this, that he was getting a lot of bad information about Joe Biden and his son. One of the things that he's reported to have told them is that he tried to tell Rudy Giuliani, the president's attorney, that the dirt that he was digging for in Ukraine was not credible and that the people he was hearing that information from could not be trusted necessarily. But Rudy Giuliani, he's been tweeting out screenshots of his conversations with Kurt Volker and others from the State Department the entire day. Rudy Giuliani doesn't seem to be letting up in his narrative that he's pushing. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what Kurt Volker told lawmakers and how it's used essentially to either discredit what Rudy Giuliani has been saying or if you're a Republican to sort of knock down uh, the criticisms of what Rudy Giuliani has been doing. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Early in the week, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law the Fair Pay to Play Act. It's the first in the nation law that will make it easier for college athletes to profit from their own name, image, and likeness. The law doesn't go into effect until 2023, but it could be a major problem for the NCAA. For more on this story, we spoke to Steve Berkowitz. He's a reporter for USA Today Sports. What it does is it gives the opportunity for athletes to make money off their name, image, and likeness in ways that are not currently allowed by NCAA rules. The NCAA doesn't forbid athletes from currently making money off their name, image, and likeness, but they have to do it in a very limited, narrow way in which they can't really mention or leverage their identities as college athletes. So they could do it just on their own names, but they couldn't do it in a way that sort of identifies themselves as being players for their particular teams. This is a big difference. Plus, it allows the prospector athletes to have agent-type representation, particularly if they're trying to work out these kinds of deals. Now, the NCAA, which is the governing body for college athletes, they are not happy about this, but they also do acknowledge that it is something that they have to address. I think they have a committee studying the issue where they were going to have a report released sometime in October, seeing how they can modernize their, their rules regarding this, but they are not happy with the law in its present form. That's true. I think that the NCAA does not want to have this imposed upon them. The membership, and again, keep in mind, the NCAA, as I always remind people, is not a group of people in Indianapolis, but rather the NCAA (laughs) is the member schools themselves. They want and they believe they have the legal right to govern themselves and make their own rules. And they want to be able to do that as opposed to having this imposed upon them. And there's also concern within the association 
about the prospect of this being dealt with on a state by state by state basis, which would conceivably give them sort of this crazy quilt of individual state regulations. There are legislative proposals in other states that while they're modeled on California's legislation, each go about it in a little bit different way. And if you're trying to be a national association, that creates all kinds of problems for you. They could even eliminate some of the California schools from participating with other NCAA schools. So they wouldn't be able to play in the same games together or be part of the same tournaments and things. Right. I mean, that's sort of the threat, or as the NCAA would say it, that's the reality, that if they're playing under different rules than the rest of the schools, then they would not be eligible for NCAA championships. There have also been some athletics directors at schools outside of California who are saying that they would be reluctant to schedule games against schools in the state of California for after the effective date of the legislation because they have no idea what those schools' status would be with the NCAA and those schools might be advantaged in their recruiting and so on. So, you know, and again, if this starts to seep into other states, though, that becomes uh, problematic. And the other thing to keep in mind is there is a piece of legislation in Congress that would have the same effect as the law now in California. That bill was proposed by a congressman from North Carolina. It was referred to the House Ways and Means Committee, and it's been sitting there ever since. But there is one there that would sort of go at this on a national basis. And that really seems where the trajectory is going on this. Governor Gavin Newsom signed this bill on uninterrupted the shop with LeBron James. And he even mentioned it then and there. He said, this is going to take root in other states. And even that's already started to come out. South Carolina, I think, said that they're working on legislation similar to this. Just today, a bill went into the hopper in the Florida House of Representatives. So, I mean, even as Gavin Newsom was doing this, there's a new state coming in. The uh, PAC-12 conference had an interesting take on this. They say that this is going to lead to the professionalization of college sports. There's going to be a lot of unintended consequences because of this. What is your thought on that side of it? There are people who would say it's not the professionalization of college sports. It's actually the restoration of a right that belongs to every individual, which is the right to make what they can off their name, image, and likeness, just the same way as any other student is able to do that. To me, that's sort of a two-sided coin. In terms of the unintended consequences, I think what PAC-12 is getting at is the prospect of the disruption in their conference if California schools were to be eliminated from contention for NCAA championships or it becomes problematic for them from a scheduling perspective because you have four schools in the Pac-12 in the state of California, and you have the remainder of the conference that's outside the state of California. And you have other conferences that are similarly situated, the Mountain West, and you know they have these same kinds of problems where you'd have schools potentially playing by different sets of rules. Steve Berkowitz, reporter at USA Today Sports, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thanks again. A little more on this whistleblower complaint against the president. The president continues to cast doubt on the allegations. There's a lot of fast moving parts, but we wanted to take a look into how big a part whistleblowing is to America. Whistleblowing has been around since the beginning of the country, and it's always been a tool to prevent the abuse of power by those who hold it. We spoke to Allison Stanger. She's the author of the book, Whistleblowers, Honesty in America from Washington to Trump to discuss what prompted the first whistleblower protection law to be enacted and how protecting them is more important than ever. Essex Hopkins and the first whistleblower protection law is incredibly important to understand right now 
because whistleblowing is America's DNA. It is not a partisan issue. It's an American issue. We passed the world's first Whistleblower Protection Act in 1778. That was in response to a man by the name of Essex Hopkins, who was first commander-in-chief of the U.S. Navy. He was removed from his office, and it led to the law, basically because he abused his public office for private gain. He was not a savory character. He tortured British prisoners of war. He used horrible rhetoric and he hurled insults at Congress. But his biggest transgression was he defied Congress on multiple occasions. General George Washington and Congress would tell him to send the U.S. Navy to a certain place to engage the British. And he would just take the ships where he wanted to take them. I know. It's some pretty blatant stuff that he was doing. Yeah, because he was a Rhode Islander, his commercial interests were at stake, and he wanted to make sure that his economic interests were served. Unfortunately, they were bound up in the slave trade. So it's a really interesting story that leads to our first whistleblower protection law and very much shows that whistleblowing is about making sure our public officials are working for the United States, not for themselves. And in the case of Essex Hopkins, it was 10 people that got together and wrote a letter to Congress basically laying out all this stuff. You know, he's not listening to you guys. He's mistreating prisoners. Tell yes. us how he responded to that. I mean, it ended up going so far that they removed him. But what did he do to the whistleblowers once they found out who they were? And then how did that lead to the first whistleblower law? He actually retaliated against the whistleblowers. He was a Rhode Islander with high social standing in Rhode Island. And there were 10 sailors who filed the complaint but two of them had the misfortune of also residing in Rhode Island, where he had enormous social power. So they were thrown in jail. Congress insisted that they be released from jail. They paid their bail and their legal fees. And they also legislated that all the records of the proceedings be made public. So that's the reason this story can be told today. I mean, it's so interesting. And, and you know, it proves the importance of why we have to protect the whistleblowers. Obviously, I want to fast forward to where we are currently right now. And this is one of the discussions that we're having about the protection of the current whistleblower against the president of the United States. People are casting doubt over his account. He might have heard things secondhand. And the president has said, you know, I want to see him. I want to meet him. I want to know who this person is. Right now, Congress is figuring out how to keep his identity secret still. As it is already, we know he's a CIA officer. Whistleblowers provide a public service, and they often wind up losing everything. So that's why whistleblower protection is extraordinarily important. What you need to understand about the current case is that this involves a, a case of national security whistleblowing, which is the most fraught, because the intelligence community is very secretive. In order to protect national security, they need to keep secrets. But in order to blow the whistle, you've got to reveal secrets. So for whistleblowers, I interviewed all the NSA whistleblowers, and also the senior leadership of the NSA. So I have some familiarity with the intelligence community, and that's why I think it's very important to focus on the content of the complaint. There's a lot of noise and things being slung back and forth. In a sense, the White House is just throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. But nobody is defending the behavior in the complaint, which is really fascinating. Right. And because this is taking place within the intelligence community, they have a different set of rules for whistleblowing. The, the country is kind of learning this as we go, as the news is going so fast with this. But in any other department of the government, you know, you can go straight to a congressman or somebody else and just kind of throw the complaint out there. But because there are secrets to be protected, because there is national security at risk, you know, possibly at risk, that's why we have this whole procedure of going to the inspector general. You have to understand it's a very rickety procedure. In my view, it's a miracle that this complaint ever saw the light of day because it's much more common for it just to be suppressed. And it somehow went forward. 
it's a miracle because the law says explicitly that national security employees are excluded from protection. That's the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. But there's an executive order that set up this process to try to carve out a safe space for national security whistleblowers through the Intelligence Community Inspector General. And that's the way the complaint rose to the top. But it's very uh, rare for there to be Intelligence Community whistleblowers. That's a barometer of how serious the situation is. There's a real fear that democracy itself is threatened. And it's not a partisan issue. It's an American issue. But increasingly, these people in the intelligence community are stepping into the roles of whistleblowers. I mean, they are privy to more of the secrets, I guess. That could be a reason why exactly. But they are the ones—they are the ones that are kind of stepping into these roles now. Yeah, you've put your finger right on it. And that's something I trace in my book, that the intelligence community has been blowing the whistle on Donald Trump since his election. They've been behaving in very atypical fashion. And they're doing so not because they've suddenly turned partisan. It's not a partisan community. Community that's doing so because they think the system itself, the rule of law system in our democracy, are threatened by a president who is using his office to advance the Trump brand rather than to uphold the rule of law and his oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So they've been sounding the alarm for the past few years, and this is just the latest, most official manifestation. One of the interesting things I, I noted in your book is how often whistleblowers are believed. I think in the book you mentioned maybe 5 to 20% of whistleblowers succeed in having their assertions believed. So while we mm-hmm. want to know the secrets and we want somebody to tell us when something is going uh, wrong, sometimes it's hard to get behind them. You go through a bunch of examples in the book, and Edward Snowden is one of them. And there was always this discussion whether he was a whistleblower or not, even though he revealed a bunch of secrets. Edward Snowden is a really interesting case because he's someone who did not complain through the inspector general system. The interesting thing about that, though, is everybody said he should have done it. He instead chose to flee the country and leak the information that way. And he was perhaps right to do that because the man in the inspector general position in the NSA at the time of the Snowden leaks, George Allard, was actually removed from his post as inspector general in 2016 for guess what? whistleblower retaliation. So there is a real bias in the intelligence community against whistleblowers for reasons I've already talked about. That's why one day Snowden may be our first traitor patriot. He initiated a public discussion that would have never taken place without his actions. And basically he revealed that standard operating procedures in the NSA, there were emergency measures taken after 9-11 that were completely justified because the nation was at war. We'd just been attacked. But those emergency procedures became standard operating procedure without any kind of public discussion or the American people knowing about it. So he initiated a public discussion that led to changes in the Patriot Act. And for that, I think he did a public service. I suggest everybody check out the book. It came out at the perfect time. I read in one of these articles that you've been working on this book for seven years. So it's yeah. not its not like, uh, you know, it, it came out because of what, what's going on right now. So, no, it, it, it's, it's a yeah. great read, and I suggest everybody check it out. The book is called Whistleblowers, Honesty in America from Washington to Trump. Allison Stanger, political and economics professor at Middlebury College, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.